Thank you for taking the time. Uh, core focus of the event this year is, uh, you know, discussing the trends for the next decade uh, and really the trends that is going to inspire the next generation of founders, right? That, that's really what we're focused on here. Uh, now, in the set of fast-growing startups, Ramp is a clear outlier. Uh, you started the company in 2019, grown incredibly quickly, uh, raised almost a billion in financing, valued at 8.1 billion. That's in three years, right? That that's a true outlier right there. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. Um, you entered a space with a lot of competitors, and the you know common advice uh, that I've heard uh, in my time uh, with startups is don't enter a heated space, don't enter, enter a competitive space. So what was your thinking? What prompted uh, the move into building something like Ramp? It, it was always very funny to me. Like our, the, the biggest player in the corporate card space is, is American Express and they started in the year 1850. Um, I, I wasn't born with the top hat. Um, you know, I wasn't around a long time ago and I, I thought, well, um, uh, well, first, the market just never exhibited the behavior where it was winner takes all. It was much more of, even from the get-go, if you study it, there's always been large scale players in different ways. Something unusual about the corporate card market too, was for most of the past 30, 40 years, if you were a bank, you were allowed to move money, you were allowed to store money, um, you could do bank-like things. And as the rest of the world passed by, went from no phone, flip phones, iPhones, all that technology was taking hold, uh, you're your bank account was your bank account. Your credit card was your credit card. It didn't change. Um, and, and I actually, I, I had a funny purview. I sold a company. Um, this looked like their logical conclusion. They're super profitable. They thought a lot about how to uh, get customers to spend more money, earn more points. Um, uh, my last company was focused on saving customers money in the same way Ramp sort of is today. And I just found it really bizarre. I, I interview customers and ask them, did you want more points? Did you want more cash back? And if you really listen, they would say, you know, I actually wanted more in my bank account. Um, uh, and I just couldn't get this idea out of my head of, of, of why is it this product that we use basically every day is sort of designed against my interests and against customers' interests. Is it actually trying to get people to spend more money and more points? What if you could take this very age-old idea of, look, people do need to move money. Um, working capital for 30 days is great. Um, cashback is fine. But what if this product was designed not with the intention of getting me to spend more money, um, but actually to spend less? Um, and so I, I think to your, to your question of what got comfort with it, um, it felt like the status quo felt off from what felt long-term uh, correct long-term align. Uh, and there was a market opening. Um, suddenly, um, you know, there could be companies like Ramp that within day 60 was doing transactions, whereas uh, over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, the only way to compete was quite literally become a bank. And so it was the combination, you know, of, of, of those factors combined with uh, it's never been winner take all. Um, yeah. Felt like it was uh, time to try. Yeah. Uh, let's let's dig into the why the the why now because you said there's a market opening which I'm uh, taking as there was a why now right um, to walk me through what was the why now and specifically was the why now something that existed for a decade and then others just didn't see the problem the way you saw it um, or was it something uh, a little bit different than that it's a super good question so so there was there was like my own why now which was like okay we're, we're the credit card the, the credit card is very profitable i just think it was being misused what if instead of getting people to spend more you could help them spend less there was another parallel one of the predominant usage of of uh, interchange was to fund reward programs when we looked at that stream of cash flows and we said what if it was actually creating more and more software from you in the same way that amazon prime got better and better every year um, and gained operating leverage. What if you were using that to create good software that would replace expense reports, bill payment software more and more over time? Um, so that there, there was some personal why nows. Mm -hmm. but, but I was very struck. This was back in you know 2019, um, 2018, of suddenly there was a, a an early signs of a fintech boom. And I started trying to trace why was that happening. Um, and a lot of it related, it, it was actually unintended consequences of 
um, the financial crisis. Um, there was a lot of regulations at the time trying to stop banks from getting at the time too big to fail. Um, one led to what was um, uh, really critical legislation in the U.S. Um, that uh, you know became known as the Durbin Amendment. Uh, it, it allowed effectively small banks to make um, the same amount of interchange, um, but large banks to make a lot less were required on consumer debit. And so it created this real incentive in the market where if you were a bank of Ohio, Sutton Bank, Celtic Bank, there's there's all these kind of regional banks where you couldn't necessarily convince people to move to Ohio or Utah or all these different places. But if you could get people to, you know, store more money with you, swipe the cards more often, you might be able to make more. With that legislation came the incentive. Then came folks like Square and Marquetta and Stripe and different folks in different ways who suddenly, if you could actually create things like the square square cash card, square card, um, you could have higher interchange. Um, there then became from individual incentives to infrastructure providers. Um, so suddenly, if you're a new company, um, there was a regulatory path for you to work with a partner bank. There was infrastructure and API for you to plug into. The cost of capital fell to very, very low. Um, you could underwrite these businesses through things like Plaid, Finicity, um, and so when you take all these things, factors together of misaligned industry, suddenly possible to compete, cost of capital was low enough. And we knew a few things. We said, this is time. Like we've, we've, we, we have to try to dig in. And I, I think that th these moments over the past 10 years have, have created, um, what is now an ex just an extremely vibrant industry. I think things are just getting started. I, I honestly think that for most of the past 30, 40 years, if you were a, you know, bank and software were distinct things. Uh, and now for the first time, you have people who can compete on uh, both in a deeply interwoven way. If you actually can program money, you actually can build software deeply into how money is moved and stored. And I, I think there's a lot of excitement in this space for a reason. Fascinating. Um, so the, the why now is really a um, function of a, a regulatory unlock or more specifically regulatory lock that created misaligned incentives along the way that then created this whole industry out of it. That's fascinating. And, and I guess you can only really see this in hindsight, right? You can't, there's nothing that says, uh, or there, there, there's really no framework around, oh, something's happening today. So it could evolve in this way in the future. Um, Even for me too, the, the more I learned about this regulatory change, the word fintech was, wasn't even a word really mm -hmm. like in, 2009 and 10, it had nothing to do with it. It was much yeah. more, like my, my personal belief, the more time we spent with it, I, I, I think a lot of it was just, you know, someone trying to protect uh, and serve the interests of, of merchants, but it actually was the crack that opened up uh, enormous amount of regulatory capture um, to open yeah. it up to innovators. So, yeah. That's interesting. How much time do you think founders at the early stages should spend uh, spend thinking about things like this, the why now? Like how much time did you really spend on it when you're thinking about this, uh, the business? How much time do you think other early stage founders should spend time on it? It's interesting. There's some people who are just great at doing like macro oriented. Like I, I think right, Jeff Bezos famously, it was like the internet is growing really fast. What business would work well? That can work for some people. And if you know enough about it, I'm sure it can work. I think... I personally view it as more important as a check by and large of, I think the personally, the best ideas come from noticing real problems that you have. Um, um, in our case, we knew a lot about savings. We talked to customers and they'd say, this product makes me worse off or less healthy. I wish this product made me healthier. And so we were struck by the incentives are misaligned an observation of out there in the world. It was possible to create credit cards are suddenly happening. And we're trying to figure out why, um, uh, is there something I'm missing? And so it really was trying to run down what's happening in the world that makes it unique. Um, um, because I, I, I'm a big believer too, you can actually um, study people who've tried things before. Um, uh, often there's incredible learnings. There was some enormous spike if they were successful and we're talking about them, something they were extremely good at and maybe some gaps in that strategy and you can use it to position um, uh, kind of in the cracks. Um, but I, I think this idea of, uh, of of looking at regulatory chain, all these different areas, probably is a more of a, of in, in most 
for, for most entrepreneurs, I think it's a secondary thing. If you've got this idea, have the conditions change where you get in a different output and output in, in a, in an experiment, um, so to speak. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you, you, you touched on something, uh, really interesting there, which is, uh, digging in to learn from past tries at it, past experiments, uh, how how do you approach that process, right? Let's just say you have an idea uh, or you have a problem more specifically that you're looking to solve and uh, you see that there are a few other folks that have tried to solve it in the past. Uh, and I can think of many such companies. Uh, um, you know, you have the Instacart and the web van. Uh, you literally have like every new thing that's worked now. People tried in the past. How do you approach something like that? Do you contact the founders of those companies, the executives of those, of those past companies, and just pepper them with questions? Super good question. Um, uh, so for like, for me, a lot of it, what is helpful about fin, fintech in general, I'll try to broad it more, more broad is anyone can actually look up a lot of the components of how, um, you know, a lot of financial service businesses, and this is particularly true for all businesses work. You can go and you can read annual reports. Um, you can go in through through 10Ks. You can you can uh, Google search Visa interchange rate table. You can see how it works. You can look at the cards on back. You can um, read up on policies. There's actually a lot you can really do um, given the regulatory disclosure, the public nature of many of these companies to start uh, understanding um, uh, in areas of where really you need multiple infrastructure partners going and saying, we're looking to, to build this, this, this is stuff. Can I get your advice? Um, I, I think often the way that people approach this is um, uh, I'm trying to do discovery. You can do that independent research, but I, I think the, 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 the way that um, if you want to get great advice from people, uh, don't try to interrogate, ask them for advice, right? Um, and so you might even go to people who are at these companies and ask them like, why is it this way? If you were to build it today, what would you do differently? I've got this, this, this kind of plan. We're looking at working with these partners. Does this make sense to you? Um, in trying to sit at the same side of the table, so to speak, and debug it, um, mm -hmm. I think makes people much more interested in problem solving together, um, maybe advising some of those people actually go into and, 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 and may want to be on your, 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 your team or support, but trying to problem solve together, um, uh, I think is kind of the, 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 the way to do it. Um, if you want to get more interesting insights on, on some of this stuff. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I was actually listening to a recent podcast you did, I think it was an invest like the best, um, you talked about the early, uh, kind of the early, um, uh, you know, pre-product stage of Ramp where you want to talk to 100 customers, if I remember correctly. Yes. And uh, you had the same concept of ask for advice, you're problem solving together. So walk me through that. Is it 100 live conversations and, it, and it, it's a path to just absorbing as much of their problems as possible? Like, how did you approach that whole process? Oh, totally. Yeah, I am. Um, so... Around that time, we had already gotten on to the, okay, if we want to build a, you know, a, a credit card designed to help people uh, spend less, we started to think through, how do you build a credit card? How do you build um, core underwriting system? And, you know, we, we, we knew a little bit enough to get started. And so by the time we showed up, you know, at the offices or in the email inboxes initially of some of these people, um, entrepreneurs we respected, um, love looked up to, um, we said, look, we, we've got this... Um, you know, we're building a credit card that's designed to help companies spend less. We think that most companies spend about 5% more, some percent more than they need to. I would love to work for you for free and, and actually try to go and help find savings. And for most people, who could say no to that? Like, it's <laughs> very, you know, it's like, sure, you want to work for, for free and tell me where I can like cut costs? Fine. And, you know, we first started, you know, uh, and people were very open. It, it was not, I'm trying, you can kind of tell when someone's trying to sell you something. Uh, and of course, you know, hopefully we, you know, we'd want to do that, but it was just, our whole premise was let me show you value first. Um, and it was incredible. You would learn a lot. You would, some people had unique issues that would cause, um, them to overspend in their business, but, um, often businesses are much more similar than they are different, um, uh, despite being in different industries. And we started seeing these repeated patterns in the fast, this was in the kind of the go-go days of, 
of, of, of WeWork and Uber and just spend as quickly as possible. Blitz scale was a thing. And so we found over and over all these companies that um, were um, littered with SaaS, um, where um, you know, often it was as simple as opening up the statements and seeing what was happening between departments to finding redundant spend. Mm-hmm. Um, there was lots of continued patterns where people started on a monthly plan, annual plans were a lot cheaper. We could see that. It was like a really simple heuristic. Um, we started seeing a lot of price discrimination. We just asked people, how much are you paying for Salesforce? Um, it varied, uh, basically like clockwork. There was this rise of contact sales and you would see this um, everywhere. And so after all these interviews, we said, okay, this is pretty interesting. First, um, um, you know, if you had a card deployed, you could start to collect this data through the card transactions itself. It was enough to know what people were spending on, but if you really wanted to help people save, you'd want to see the receipts, um, um, whether it's um, after a transaction to facilitate a bill payment, you would have both of it. If you could go and build some really, it was initially our first savings product was built in a weekend um, just to kind of um, first first automate the process of manually going through these transactions Then it was code that stood on its own. Um, but it was much more of a process of, of for these, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 companies, how do we help them save? Some of them took the savings and said, thanks, see you later. Others said, okay, well, um, I, uh, you saved me $50,000, I, I will use the cart. Um, we'll try it. Um, and uh, it, it helped us get off to the races, um, you know, being, being actually sincere uh, in trying to show value first and, you know, collect more people. And, and those stories are powerful. Like the, the last thing I'd say in, 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 my, in my rant here is like, um, you know, people in, in B2B, I, I think I'd underestimate how much people will call other customers and ask them. And you really count on making your first 50, 100 people really, really happy um, um, because those are the people that, um, you, know, you need references, you know, they know other entrepreneurs and other businesses, um, at every level, whether they're founders or just they're members of the finance team. And, you know, mm-hmm. they're calling other friends for advice. And if you were able to, to do things that were, um, you know, don't scale, but, but, but actually really help them, um, uh, that transfers and was, was one of the core ingredients that led to, to Rams fast growth. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's actually, um, that, that, that's really interesting that you approached it as, hey, I'd love your advice. And then here, let us do this for you. Like, we'll just deliver value. Yeah. And then um, as a follow-up, like, hey, if there was value, you want to use our product, right? That, that seems to be the, the, the trend, the pattern. That's right. And, and a lot of it for us, too, was we were using it to figure out what was automatable. What could you product yeah. over time? Mm-hmm. And it became a, a bit of a natural sale of like, look, we did this and you found this one time. Um, mm. But what if you could do this every week of every right. month, you had software that was really designed for that. And by the way, you're dealing with these lack of controls. We can build, yeah. you know, um, or with much more controls, you have accounting issues. Let's automate some more of this. And so mm-hmm. it became sort of what was initially us trying to do this for you to, could you design products that, uh, that, sort of touch where the, you know, either the, the, the actual workflow was happening, where the data was stored, consolidated this together. And so over time you could go and say, um, you know, uh, look, I, in the same way people wear like an aura ring and Apple watch, um, um, versus like an annual checkup, like you could, um, I, like annual checkups, I'm sure are fine. Um, but being able to have this always on cleansing improvement, you know, thing that's getting better and helping get more efficient that is constantly upgrading just feels better. It it feels more modern. Um, um, And so I I think a lot of people saw the value. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to call ramp the aura for a B2B spend management now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Love it. So, you know, what, what, what's interesting is sometimes when founders go talk to customers, they'll come back and they'll say, well, hey, they gave me a list of things that I should go build, right? But my, my, my feedback always is, well, they're just telling you to build a faster horse, right? So how do you, how do you step back from that? Because there is a fine line um, between just building everything someone wants versus solving a problem. So how do you, how do you approach that? What's your framework around that? Love. 
I, I love that you asked that. And, and even that phrase is like uh, probably one of the most common tropes or, or things that people talk about in the product team of like, um, you know, car, car, not a faster horse. So I, I think a lot of it is, I, I think actually thinking a lot about TAM and like product market fit and saying no a lot is super, has been like super key to, to ramping is, is, is growing as quickly as we have. Like, so something on the surface, a lot of times people say like, like ramp is, 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 is optimized towards speed. And like, we, we talk about it a lot and it's an explicit design goal of, of iterating quickly, but mm -hmm. part of what allowed us to do a, do this was being really, um, Kind of say, like 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 deliberate and cutting a lot of things off and saying no to things. So so as a small example, the the paradigm in the industry um, pre ramp was credit cards were in one world, and then you would port it over to Expensify or Concur. Um, as we were doing design like design interviews with customers, um, initially we thought it was all about saving money, and we started meeting these companies that said. I can't close my books on time. It's really dysfunctional. My finance team are, are beating up on like on people. And they're never getting expenses in. Um, and, um, you know, it, it takes about a month on average to get it. And so our view is, well, what if we could collapse that process? Um, mm -hmm. Swipe a card. Your expense policy is actually fused into it. Um, so you, you could control your, your card with code. We can text you when the receipt is still in your hand rather than waiting a day later. Um, and um, we could even use that data to automate your books and accounting. That mm -hmm. works if you say no to Expensify and Concur. Um, uh, and early on, that actually dramatically reduced the TAM for us. There were lots of you know accountants who would say, what do you mean I'm not going to use Expensify or Concur? Uh, mm -hmm. I've been using it for 20, 30 years. And all of the new entrants in the spend management category we're delighted to build, you know, integrations with everybody. They built integrations with Concur, with Expensify, and the ongoing, like the ongoing costs of of that, drag them. Like, still, they're maintaining multiple different versions and use cases and poor workflows. And, and initially, we had said, we're 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 going to make this this more opinionated design decision to mm -hmm. actually replace it because we think it is a better experience for for users. It's going to feel more like a toy initially, like smaller, smaller companies will be open to doing this and maybe larger companies will say no. But as mm -hmm. we start getting good enough, fast enough automating about it, you could now today, you know, ramp is known for fully replacing and displacing it. I, and I think what helped us get there was, was first for a certain subset of customers, it was a much tighter pitch. You know, they didn't want to spend thousand dollars a year on Expensify. You could bring this down. It was faster. Um, and then our belief was if you got good at that fast enough, your card LTV was dramatically more than the LTV of an expense management uh, one. You could use that to have an acquisition advantage, um, you know, against other, let's say, folks in the market move faster. Um, and so that's, there's a product lens. There's also a, um, uh you're just being diligent about like feedback and trying to map it to TAM. Like every mm -hmm. time, even from early on, if we would win a customer, if we would lose a customer, um, we would map out what's, what are the needs and what's the revenue or spend associated. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we go to every customer and figure out, okay, they're spending, maybe they didn't want to switch to us, but they're spending 50,000 a month on their cards. So they're spending a million a month. And we would start to see both by number and in terms of by volume, mm -hmm. what were the features at least they thought they wanted um, that they asked for, and then we could try to cut through with this launch, what portion of it could we actually tackle and then go back to and say, we, we solved that. Um, we'd love to show it to you, um, you know, get their input as a, you know, again, get their advice again, as a design partner, um, bring them on. Uh, and, you know, some would say, if you deliver this, I'll build it. Great. Um, it'll be done in two weeks. Um, let's get you onboarded. And you could actually use that as a way of, of sort of slashing down, um, by TAM. And if you talk to enough customers, um, that internal tally of volume you'd unlock could be a proxy to what is the market. And if you do things right, um, you know, you're able to unlock more of the market, have a better design for a product and sort of cross solve it. So we try to look at both lenses 
Mm-hmm. Uh, last, just some, I don't think there's a perfect algorithm. It's probably just our, our, our gut using some, some, some taste. Sometimes we're right, other times we're wrong. But if you're moving and shipping pretty quickly, um, yeah. you'll be able to deal with it. And how much of the um, product development process incorporates uh, a question around TAN? Like, how do you incorporate it? Because sometimes when you're creating products, it's, it's like art, right? You're sort of like listening, uh, internalizing the problems and going, well, this is what I think this should look like. And you show it to the world. Sometimes the world says, no, this is crap. Uh, but sometimes they love it. And so how much of that process also incorporates like, oh, let's take a look at the TAM at the same time. I'm curious. Yeah, I love this question. So I, I think it's like a, it's an evolving thing. So early on, I actually think in the extremely earliest days, it's actually having like a, a product with like a modicum of usefulness is like kind of the the art and the craft for us is like, how do we make a card people would put in their pocket, so to speak, and like use um, and we had this notion of, okay, we're trying to, you know, maximize money and time savings. We had this view of if you could go end to end from issuing a card out to getting receipts and expenses to closing some transactions faster, let's do that. So we built like a very thin layer and we try to expand it into more card transactions, more, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, eventually payments and, and go and take on larger teams. So I would say explicitly the first is, you have something in mind, but actually just make it useful for like 10 companies, 50 companies, like that's enough. Um, I think the next overlay for us is, can you go and actually craft a unique story and positioning? I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, but in a crowded market, especially if you're moving um, second or, or you know, the 300th entrant to a race or whatever we were, um, um, that's, that's important. And then I actually think in the scale up, in the initial scale up phase, I think being super deliberate on actually what is the one variable the out that you are the output um, that you're trying to optimize against. Mm-hmm. Um, be really opinionated on it. Um, for us, it was um, for a long time. It actually was purchase volume, um, uh, and that was the right level of proxy where it was it was immediate. A customer could go out, could use it, swipe a card. Um, put it somewhere online and we could see it. We had multiple paths. You could get larger customers with more, fewer customers, more volume or a large number was small and it could add up to it. And there was degrees of freedom in the acquisition of the growth and the product development, but there was an explicitly of what can we develop? How do we grow that with the least effort possible or the least time possible allows us to start to grow into that. Mm -hmm. The reason we were comfortable with that is it correlated to revenue um, pretty directly. Um, it correlated to, um, you know, friction. People needed to account and close the books on all these volumes. And so it would be a good proxy for the rest. But actually, we made trade-offs very explicitly of what will, in the shortest duration, grow that. It's changed. At this point now, we're, we're getting closer. We can start looking at revenue. We can look at contribution profit mix. We can look at actually starting to build into what are the next areas, you know, a, more of time um, where a company is taking too long to close. And so, it changes, but I think if you're zero for, you know, through 200 people, actually trying to constrain the problem as much as you can um, um, so you can make these trade-offs, I think is probably the most important thing that that that, that early teams can do. Um, yeah, you, you've said a word a few times. I'm going to dig into that a little bit. Opinionated, right? Having an opinion on how the world should work. Um, uh, you know, I come across uh, companies and startups all the time where it doesn't seem like there's any unique opinion, any different opinion. Um, how how important do you think is having a unique and different opinion of how the world should work to the success of a startup? And another way to ask the question is if if as a founder you don't have a unique view or unique opinion, should you really reconsider what you're doing? Uh, or, or how would you approach that? I I love that. Like I um I think people so one in general, yes, I think that you do ninety 99 of, of startups. I, I I think you gotta remember a lot of this is like people don't have to work together um on your team. Um most 
uh, I think companies are a battle against people not giving a shit. Like, like people have got their families, their own stressors. They don't need to use your new product, right? And I think if you're going to ask people to 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 have an extraordinary amount of focus of of work, um, of trying and, and struggling to build something new, it should serve some purpose in 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 the end. And I think um, the companies, or at least what we've tried to model is we are very opinionated. Of, of, of we have a, a clear purpose. Our purpose as a company is to um, um, help companies get more of their scarcest resources. It's their time uh, and it's their shareholders' capital. Um, we are explicitly here to serve customers um, and um, help them become much more efficient versions of themselves. How we get there uh, and it turns out like, you know, what is causing uh, companies to waste money? What's causing them to waste time? You can learn an incredible amount of that and you can you can deviate and you can figure out what is the right path to get there. But why we exist um, and what we are trying globally to optimize against is very, very clear. Um, and I, I think the combination of both is is, is an amazing one. Like, um, like at one point, I, I think 30% of, of the headcount of, of Ramp were former entrepreneurs, um, former founders. And I, I think when you've got that, if this is the output um, uh, that we're trying to direct you, you decide um, how we're going to get there, what products actually are causing people to save those money and time. You're going to get real creativity, different solutions than one you could see and like the bigness of, of mission combined with flexibility is exciting. Um, and you can get people to to um, really be invested and work in a very different way. Um, so I think it's important. Sometimes where I think people go wrong on the opinionated fact is uh, it becomes like a micromanaging controlling aspect of not only my opinionated, but I know exactly how the world should work. Um, and that becomes delusion. Um, and, and so I think it's a careful balance of like, I do think um, people should have feelings of, look, I believe this, you can be right or wrong. Um, but like the world is not at its, you know, its end state. It can be better in X ways. And here's what we exist to do. Um, you can have kind of strong opinions loosely held about the best path to get there. Uh, and then using the input, you, you, you can go and, um, feel more different, but, but I actually think opinionated products are like in the context of the world is busy and distracted and as competitive as it can be. Um, I, I think, um, I think it's a must. I, I really do. And I, I, I love that you, you pushed in on it. Yeah. And then how, um, how do you actually transfer context? Sounds like what you're saying is you've set the purpose of the company, the vision of the company, and then you're transferring context to the team that can then make those opinionated decisions. Um, now each person will have their own context, of course, as they're coming into RAM. So how do you communicate that context like what 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 are some frameworks or rituals you have inside the company that help you scale yourself because when the product was just you or your founders much easier right because you were just building it uh now as you're several hundred people like how do you actually make sure that the team has a context they need to have their opinions that are also mostly correct opinions of course <laughs> we're, we're definitely not perfect. Uh, we, we've, we've done some stupid things, but like I am. Um, so let's stack some of these things up that I, I think that we're um, teams that you're talking that you're talking about. So first, we have this idea of constraints um, uh, and different kind of arcs early on. It might be we got to get a product to launch. Maybe that's to a launch day. And this is the spec. And we would almost pre-write, OK, um, uh, on launch day in four months. We're gonna have a you know first card design to help you spend less. Maybe there's we we want to have um, you know in some of the fastest growing companies in New York are using it. Here's the output of we help you save you know two and a half percent on all your transactions. And so you say okay, this is what we're trying to do. Here's the timeline. Good plan. Not enough time. Um, you know how how are we gonna go and, and, and get there? And so early on, it's just this sort of alignment around this is the output we're trying to hit. You have freedom mm -hmm. controls over the inputs to go and do that. Let's kind of crap back. We've got, um, you know, uh, 10 sprints, whatever the cycles, let's map out in order to get there. What needs to happen over what time horizon? And you can be kind of, you need to move the, the data a little bit. You, you can, but um, mm -hmm. sort of driving alignment and agreement, it might initially be around a narrative and a story in a first launch. Later, you know, let's say, okay, we want to 
go and uh, grow purchase volume, we might say, you know, we want to grow, um, you know, 25% per month for the next four months. And so we hope to, pot there was, you know, um, we, we launched in Feb 2020 and our goal was by April 30th of, of, of 2020 that we would do 10 million a month in volume. Um, and um, we, we, we had a TV, um, we put up a, a, a redash panel and we would kind of go and track and see, could you actually go and, and, and hit this kind of mark? Um, mm -hmm. You have kind of, okay, here's the output. Here's the, you know, um, we could agree and align on what were the inputs, the things that mattered. We broke it down into um, a few cycles, sprint cycles. Um, uh, we, would, we would try to think about the inputs that would do it faster, claims of savings, talking to more customers, and then just make it a systems of equations and, and, and hit go. Is, mm -hmm. is generally trying to so trying to deconstruct the problem is 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 I would say the heart of it. Um, there are things though, and I, I think more broadly related to your question of how do you set common context that I I think are super key. I think getting to the clarity of like what is the mission and vision and talking about that very often is super mm -hmm. important. Like even today, you know, it's day thirteen twenty four. Uh, at the company, been around for a long time, and like I will still do onboarding with everyone who comes into the company. Um, and during that onboarding, we talk the mission vision. Um, we ask people what what brought people. Um, we clarify what's what's the you know the purpose. What are we aligned as a company to do? Uh, mm -hmm. And then we go through early board decks. We actually say these were the decisions, patterns that we made um, uh, in the get go. Um, you know, we share early metrics and, you know, it was not to say, Hey, look, um, study the early history, um, the early context. It's more to say, these were the decisions that we made at the time. Some of these decisions no longer apply. Um, you know, the, the world has changed in some ways, context has evolved. I want you to have a critical view. So you feel comfortable rewriting it, knowing kind of our, our admission of where we're trying to get to this vision. Um, what was the path that took us there? Um, um, you know, here's how we organize, go out and, and, and let's do it. Um, so, so those are some of those things, but I actually think to your, to your point, um, thinking about inputs, outputs, rituals, um, what you do regularly, um, so that people, you know, once those are set, you've got the structure, people are able to be creative, go and attack a problem in their own way. Um, if you get that right, a lot of the rest follows. Yeah. And you, you mentioned um, having an output, deconstructing into a formula uh, in, in a system almost, um, and putting that, up, putting that up on the screen. Was that an early ritual that you still have to date? And is it a single formula for like all teams or just folks or a single output that all teams are looking at? So the... Our first outside board member was was Keith Ferboy at, at, at Founders Fund, and he, one of the things that he advocates for um, and was deeply impactful was at the first board meeting, um, we wrote out what was the business equation of, of, of RAMP. How does the business actually work? Um, what are the inputs that drive to, okay, that revenue? And if you broke it down and you really simplified it, it wasn't that many. Um, actually, um, uh, where you could see, okay, purchase volume times the interchange rate, less, the, let's say the funding costs, less the rewards yeah. costs, all that might lead to your contribution profit, right? And so everyone is trying to go and maximize this thing at the end. And the question is, what actually drives it? Mm. So first trying to break it down uh, into the business, allowed people to have a much cleaner way of thinking about the business. You're coming and you could say, okay, if I just keep these four things in mind. I kind of yeah. know, but then you started thinking about how they interrelate and something pretty interesting happened in, in our business equation, you know, mm -hmm. purchase volume, if that was, up, that's obvious that that grows, you know, revenue and, and profit. But if you look at interchange, there was something bizarre of the more volume we did, the more interchange we make. So to maximize interchange, we would maximize purchase volume to mm -hmm. funding cost. If you wanted to borrow a hundred million dollars, um, for your card receivables versus 10, you would get charged a lower in, a lower interest rate. And mm -hmm. so in a strange way to minimize your funding costs, you would want to maximize your purchase volume. And you started tracing these things through and it actually gave you the intuition to say, okay, if we want to grow this early on, the reason why we're trying to maximize purchase volume is it made every part of the business better. And mm -hmm. so then it came in order to do that, what would do that? Okay, well, talking to more people, 
clearer message, saving people money and time, differentiated value are the inputs that mm-hmm. would go to maximizing that. And so it really simplified a lot of our core business, um, um, you know, early on. And so I actually think for, for most people just getting started um, mm-hmm. at some point thinking about how does the business really work and what are the natural incentives for mm-hmm. your business and how do you articulate that and then align your company behind it. Um, it makes things a lot easier. Um, and so, you know, I, some people say like, it doesn't it feel silly to, to write a, a business equation. And I, I actually think um, it really doesn't. Uh, most businesses like actually are, 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 are quite simple. If you can, if you take the time to really simplify it down and, and doing that clarifies a lot of your own um, thinking uh, and team's time. Yeah. And then do you have a, a dashboard that has that formula that's constantly updating with the inputs and the outputs and people can see the weights and the sensitivity you have that? Exactly. We do. And and we manage, like we look at the outputs, but we manage almost entirely to the inputs. And so there's some months where like the outputs are incredible. Like we're, it's growing super fast and people are, you know, like banging their head against the wall um, because the early and the leading indicators um, you know, the results in, in three months are, are going to be different. And, you know, and conversely, it's the other way. Sometimes, you know, people are, 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 you know, over the moon, um, even though we're having a slow month, cause we kind of know and have done that. And I think if you do things in that way, you're mm-hmm. able to have much more, um, uh, you know, uh, traction input sense of what's actually driving it, uh, driving your business. And then you can, you know, it also gives you the space to stop working on things that don't actually, you know, the inputs that don't matter. Um, yeah. I, I would say for, for, for me, and I, I think, you know, some, for some people, entrepreneurship is their first job for most they've had, you know, they worked in some other company or some corporate setting. Uh, and I think in most jobs in the world, success is a direct is directly related to how many hours do you work? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. um, uh, and it turns out in the real world and in startups, it doesn't actually work that way. Um, and so um, being able to one, unlearn that, but two, actually start thinking about there are simply some things that are 10 times as effective and you won't know unless you're deliberate about it's kind of trying to understand the connection between input and output. Um, okay. um, so tuning that way, I think is good. Yeah. Yep. Make, make, makes total sense. Um, j- jumping to a uh, related but slightly different topic. You touched on um, how to position the product earlier, like very briefly. Um, I'm, I'm curious if there's one thing you'd want to share with an early stage founder or someone that's looking to just launch their product, like what is it around positioning, marketing, whatever you want to call it? Um, let's. I'm curious about what advice you would give them. Yeah, I think this stuff is, inc- like to me, it was totally foreign, right? Like what I'd say to anyone is like, you don't need to be like a market, like someone who's came up or studied marketing to learn this stuff. My, my very first job back in the, the, the day was like, uh, or out of college was, was in, in, in bankruptcy restructuring banking. Right. Um, uh, and the, the bent of people there was don't talk to anybody. You don't even tell like, your families, the media about what's going on. Um, and so if you can kind of come from, from that to like thinking about how to work and I actually love now a lot of thinking about how to tell a good, good story. Um, uh, I think, I think this stuff is all very learnable, um, um, is, is the first, I would say the second, um, I would say the general framework that people have with regard to, you know, uh, is you you sort of think about and obsess of all the reasons that you build things, all the, the value props, all the factors that led you to develop it. And often people go out with messaging to people of like, I've got this product, I want you to understand stuff. And how do I find people who want to write that? And most people don't. Um, uh, it turns out most, you know, I think self-respecting journalists are there to cover news. You know? And I would argue a lot of the better way to do it is invert it and sort of study actually what do people write about why, what are they interested in? Um, take that one as a factor. The next, look at what else is out in the world, like before branding ramp, before sort of getting at some of the, the you know, we, we, we sort of deeply believe cards and, and, and financial products should help people spend less. We even started looking visually 
Like what were all the colors that other people were using? What were the languages? What were the points programs? And trying to find if you if you spend enough time with it, you know, there are exercises you can go through of, of actually trying to figure out what was the white space. And it just like jumped out to us after, you know, took a few weeks, but you, you get there and, and you know, and, and, and we saw there was this, this issue where um, most of how these companies over time would make money and how they grew their margin was kind of tricking people. Um, they would say, you know, um, enjoy 4X points here or this really sign-up bonus or 7X on that, 3X there. But if you actually looked at their financial statements, uh, they were only spending like, you know, 0.9%, 1%, that, that kind of thing. And so there was a mismatch between what they're pitching. And, and actually over time, you had really brilliant people um, acting against their customers' best interests. And so we said, let's initially, let's eat the cost actually. Um, um, uh, and trying to first align our business, but if you could start to both from find the white space, but even deposition and tell a story of, look, Every product that you're doing is, is actually giving your employees a bit of a subtly wrong incentive. Um, um, not only does it help you stand out on that day, you find people who are interested in some of these David versus, you know, Gol Goliath stories, people who are interested in something different and new, but actually it's enduring. Um, it goes mm -hmm. into your sales narrative. It goes into your product ethos. You start thinking about, you know, if it's opposite day and we're trying to help you spend less, um, what more, you know, how would you do it? And I think there's lots of industries like this, um, where the incentive set, the ability, especially in industries that are hard to compete, often the, the idea of alignment with customers is an afterthought. So I think that's a, that's a huge theme. Um, but sort of just taking a time to think about how can you have X versus Y, the press also loves these narratives of like, you know, Uber versus Lyft, Apple versus Microsoft, like name your, 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 your company. Um, and if you can actually break through, like we were a big beneficiary of that, um, um, because even when we were a tiny startup, we were getting attached to in headlines with some of the new um, players in the space. And so every time they would go out and write a story, you know, um, we would show up as an alternative. Um, and because we showed up, we could, you could have a different perspective. And so actually even trying to think about um, I think since people are scared of, of markets where there's a big first mover, um, we just started seeing this over and over where sometimes other people being into it and actually leaning into that became mm -hmm. a huge seller and you could kind of grab onto it and then slingshot um, yourself. I think the, the main key and danger is making sure you don't grab onto and just get stuck on it, like using it slingshot and then differ differentiate more and more over time. As long as you both could be okay. Um, yeah. and, and how much of that... Um, uh, that strategy was a conscious counter positioning strategy versus a different type of strategy, like grabbing onto an existing player in the market. I'm curious, like, was that something that you had uh, sort of explored going into it, or it it, it was something that um, evolved as you started thinking about ways in which to uh, market and position the company? So it came from, it's a super good question. It came from a, a couple of things. I mean, one, like there was a a bit of a, you know, a different worldview at the start, but we mm -hmm. went from like day five of the company and we started like trying to recruit friends or different investors. They're like, well, what about X or Y? Aren't they already doing this? Um, right. And I actually think a lot of um, people's natural mental state is to say like, um, um, won't competition kill you? And I think rare, it's like that's very rare that that actually happens. Um, but I think it forced us to to start thinking about early on is like what is actually different about this thing? Why is this worthwhile? Um, and um, you know, to think a little bit both of like okay, there's some goodness there. There is something that this other company is very good at. Um, how do we learn and appreciate that? Um, and also. You know, if if we're we're lucky enough one day to become a a problem in the market, assume they're going to be super smart and come at us with everything they've got. So understand that, um, you know. But also too, um, you know, thinking about what is uniquely us, I think was was important. Um, I think the later thoughts of actually when you sort of think about the tactics of going and telling the story of, mm -hmm. um, you know, X versus Y, you could be explicitly of like, oh well, who covered these other companies? That might be a proxy in, in some ways they've sort of done some of the, the, the work and there, there's market signals that you can actually pull. You can either 
do basic research or you can say who are all the people that like just do a bunch of Google searches. And so it can speed you up in a lot of ways and, and mm -hmm. actually um, save a lot, save a lot of uh, certain work. But I think that's more tactical and more, more narrow. Yeah. Like it, it's not, I think going to make a long-term difference to, to the company is my, my, my general take, but it, it'll help in the short run. Yeah. Got it. Cool. I'd love to end on a, um, on a, on a, uh, on a note around product market fit. If there was one thing I could communicate to all founders I talk to is just what product market fit actually is and what it feels like. I personally have spent a lot of time in past companies, not knowing it. And I spent a lot of time, you know, a lot, a lot of wasted time. So I'm curious in your words, how did you know, like when ramp at product market fit, what does it actually mean to you? What does it feel like? Um, uh, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about that. I, I love that you asked it too. And I, for me, like I am um, in previous companies, I've had it and I've lost it um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and gained it back again. And it is first, like I, I can't underpin of like how much you, you really can know it when you feel it. And I, I, I think um, having real checks and constraints and stop points in your business to figure that out is the important between like finding and sprinting at something versus wandering in, in the desert. Um, um, and so for us, a lot of the, the first phase of product market fit was like a modicum of usefulness of like, could you actually make something that, okay, we've got this design goal of we want to have a card. It saves you some time and money. So could we actually accomplish that? Could we have 10 businesses that are using the card with some regularity? Maybe it becomes their, their core thing. We knew that. Um, they could close their books. They could, um, you know, um, we could go and ask them either we could go and deliver the savings um, manually, or they could say like, actually, yes, we are better off for having used this. I'm going to use it and recommend it. That was it. So some of it was like explicit things we could measure. Some was like a core NP NPS and getting that back. Later on, it became much more of like kind of um, uh, more aggressive growth goals of could we have not just the product fit, but the product market fit of, mm -hmm. of going out and efficiently scaling with a certain period of time, could could we grow a certain percentage amount? And that can shift and, and, and evolve. But using that as a constraint, um, uh, I think was was really it. And if you are consistently able to grow at a certain rate, that's a sign of you've got product you mar you, you've product market fit, and there's a lot more market for you to go. And if you're just putting in incredible amount of work, your focus it's it's near and close, and you can't get it. It's probably a sign of like there's something isn't quite fitting uh, in, in it. So th those are kind of our, you know, um, the initial fit and then the velocity test. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I could actually talk on uh, on many other topics. Uh, you touched on a few other ones. I want to dig into constraints and all of that, but we are out of time uh, and I want to be respectful of your time. So thank you, Eric. Uh, I think founders are going to find this extremely val valuable and insightful. Uh, thanks again for the time. Hope it's useful and thanks. Uh, thanks for the opportunity and um, uh, yeah, very excited.